0: How are doctors using fericumab in real-world settings? The Iris Registry has a few answers.
1: I'm Greg Notstein with Scott Chris Wanus, and this is New Retina Radio's Arvo 2023 coverage from Retina Today and Bryn Communications. We sat down with Dr. Durga Borkar to hear what researchers in the Farretna AMD study group found regarding dynamics related to ferizumab's use in wet AMD patients since its approval in January of last year.
0: We also interviewed Dr. Varun Chowdhury to learn specifically about ferizumab treat and extend regimens in wet AMD patients who were enrolled in Tanaya and Lucerne. How many patients achieved treatment intervals of 12 or 16 weeks? We'll learn more in this episode.
1: The AAO's IRIS Registry is a real-world database comprised of data from EHR systems. It's a massive resource for scientists seeking to better understand the dynamics of real-world patient behavior physician trends, and overall outcomes.
0: It is especially useful, we're learning, when it comes to assessing the efficacy of therapies that are new to the treatment landscape. When it comes to wet AMD, that means performing an assessment of fericumab's early returns in real-world patients. Dr. Durga Borkar was the lead author on an Arvo poster on that topic, and she joins us here today.
1: Dr. Borkar practices at the Duke Eye Center in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Borkar, welcome to New Render Radio.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to be back.
0: Your study is called Farretina amd A handful of other studies, including the Truckee study and the Voyager study, are also examining the effects of fericimab in the real world. What makes FAL Retina amd so different?
2: One key highlight of this study is that it pulls from the IRIS registry, which allows us to examine patients outside of a tightly controlled clinical trial setting. And it also allows us to look at patients beyond just particular centers that are used for retrospective analyses. In IRIS, we have over 540 million de-identified patient encounters, over 75 million de-identified unique patients, and there are over 16,000 clinicians who contribute. Also, updates to the iris registry are performed often and the data lag continues to decrease. So we have snapshots of nearly current moments at this point. We think our study will help contribute to the overall body of literature on these early farisimab results in conjunction with some of the other studies that you mentioned.
1: You identified 16 and a thousand patients that received farisimab for wet AMD from February 2022 to September of that same year. How many of them made the final cut for Faretta AMD?
2: Well, we included eyes with the documentation of neovascular AMD on their index date or entry into the cohort, and at least 12 months of data available prior to that entry date. We only included eyes with known laterality and demographic info that was necessary for the analysis. That left us with about 70% of the original set of patients, or 12,000 patients and 14,000 eyes. What we saw is that 87% of these eyes had undergone previous anti-VEGF treatment. The remaining 13% were treatment-naive. This is obviously very different than what we see in clinical trials, where all of the patients are treatment-naive. And overall vision for real-world furisimab patients was fairly good, with nearly half of them having better than 2040 best-documented visual acuity at the time of their switch to furisimab.
1: What can you tell us about patients with a history of wet AMD therapy?
2: Well, the mean injection frequency in that 12 months prior to switch to faricimab was about six weeks for the treatment interval. And what we saw was that about two-thirds of those treatment experienced patients had received a flibercept immediately prior to switching to faricimab approximately half of these eyes with a treatment history had about six months of follow-up.
0: That covers eyes with a history of treatment. What about treatment naive eyes?
2: Well, treatment naive eyes are a little bit difficult to assess at this point with only six months of follow-up because typically most of us treat neovascular AMD patients on a treat and extend regimen. And many of us give three loading doses about four to five or six weeks apart. But we did see that 30% of treatment naive eyes had greater than six months of follow-up, and they needed a mean of four injections during that period. I do think, though, that we're going to have a better understanding of durability and treatment extension for these treatment naive eyes the longer follow-up that we have.
0: Sure. Understood. Now, one of fericumab's strengths is the increased likelihood of an extended duration that can reduce treatment burden. What did we see in real-world patients?
2: We limited our exploration of treatment intervals to patients with at least six months of follow-up at this point. What we saw was that about two-thirds of patients with a treatment history were extended to a greater than six-week treatment interval. And 53% of those eyes experienced that extension and in treatment interval after only one or two injections. And we saw that 76% of treatment-naive eyes were extended to greater than six-week intervals within that six-month follow-up. And actually 56% of those treatment naive eyes experienced that extended interval after only one or two injections, which is great since I mentioned before that oftentimes we are in those first three injections loading the patient. So what we really saw in these early real world results is that durability is, is pretty impressive and that we're often treating fairly refractory patients with furicumab in the real world currently. Hopefully, we'll start to see as more treatment-naive patients enter this cohort, as well as patients that maybe have only been treated with one prior agent prior to switch, that will have a broader understanding on the impact, not only on interval, but also on visual acuity in a much more diverse set of patients.
1: When can we expect another cut of data from the study?
2: That's a great question. We're really excited about this study. At ARVO, we presented the results of our current cohort, which we plan to continue to refresh. And we'll be presenting these results on the podium at ASRS. I should mention also that we've done a parallel study looking at diabetic macular edema, and those results were presented at ARVO and they'll also be presented at the ASRS annual meeting on the podium.
1: Excellent. Well, we look forward to hearing those updates this summer in Seattle. Dr. Borkhar, thank you so much for joining us here on New Retina Radio.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Ample evidence suggests that treat and extend regimens for wet AMD offer the best of both worlds. Anatomic and functional results that are similar to those seen with monthly treatment regimens, but reduced treatment burden. Most of that evidence, however, focuses on anti-VEGF agents that retina specialists have been using for years. Now that a new treatment, fericumab, is available, we'd like to know how well wet-AMD patients fare when undergoing treat-and-extend fericumab therapy. To find out, I sat down with Dr. Varun Chowdhury. Dr. Chowdhury is a professor of ophthalmology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, He is also the chair of the Retina Evidence and Trials International Alliance. That goes by the acronym R-E-T-I-N-A, Retina. Dr. Chowdhury, welcome to New Retina Radio.
3: Thank you very much, Scott, for inviting me. Look forward to our discussion.
0: Let's be clear. We're not looking at real-world data here. We're looking at the Phase 3 Tanaya and Lucerne studies, which were unique in that they had a treat-and-extend dosing model built into the study protocol. Tell us more about that.
3: So I think you bring up a very important point, Scott. As you know, we have been using Treat and Extend in cl- clinical practice for almost a decade.
0: Only this is the first
3: time we have had a Treat and Extend paradigm in a phase three pivotal trial where everyone was double mass. So it's a very robust methodology in terms of testing Treat and Extend. And of course, we also have this new agent, uh, forisumab that suppresses or binds to VegfA a and ANG2. So we're looking at a couple of new things, and that's why My colleagues and I wanted to do a deeper dive to really look at how treat and extend worked. So I think, you know, as clinician, it's important to step back and look at the the clinical protocol, the methodology used in the trial. And I think for me, three things stand out. Uh, Number one, let's focus on the control arm. So control arm was actually not a treat and extend arm. In the control arm, in this trial, patients were given a flibricep every month for three loading doses and then fixed dosing every Q2 months. I think that's actually important to note because one of the uh, assumptions of non-inferiority trial is the constancy assumption, meaning that the control arm should really give us the best results we can expect in clinical practice. And I think this control arm uh, certainly lives up to that expectation. The second learning point for me is the the frisimab, the treatment arm. And unlike some other treatment extend trials we've had historically, this was somewhat different. I think the goal here was to really use this dual mechanism of this new agent to first stabilize the disease in year one, and then bring in this treat and extend personalized treatment algorithm to to really help reduce the treatment interval moving forward. So how was this done with frisimab? There was four monthly dosing uh, given. And then after that, at week 20, patients were assessed. And if they had active disease, they were put on Q8 dosing. Otherwise, they were assessed at week 24. If there were signs of disease activity then, they were put on Q12 dosing. And if they were still inactive, they were put on Q16 dosing. And they were kept in those swim lanes till week 60. And then after week 60, patients were then transferred to this treat and extend, personalized treat and extend algorithm. And the third learning point from the trial is the PTI algorithm is actually very similar to, I think, what many of us do in clinical practice. It's somewhat pragmatic in in how it was applied. Essentially, patients were extended every four weeks up to 16 weeks. The minimal interval was eight weeks. The decision criteria for for treatment was signs of active disease, whether it was anatomy or functional vision. So patients had vision loss, worsening CST, new hemorrhage, that was defined as active disease, and the treatment interval was reduced either by four or eight-week intervals. If they were completely stable, they were extended. Or lastly, if they were in between, they were maintained. So I think those are kind of the three unique features of how this trial protocol was set up and how we incorporated treat and extend in these phase three trials.
0: The study design obviously resulted in fewer treatments for many of your patients over time. Uh, can you offer me a few details about that? Within the
3: study uh, context, for sure, it seemed like this this concept of stabilizing the disease and then going to a personalized treatment extent uh, seemed to have worked quite well. Uh, over the uh, 108 weeks for the study duration, the frisimap arm had a median of 10 treatments given compared to a flibricep arm that had 15 treatments. Now, we need to remember flibricep was not a treatment extend that was a fixed dosing arm, but I think if we kind of look at clinical practices and other clinical trials, of course, cross-trial comparisons that are fraught with limitations. But 10 treatments to control and achieve non-inferiority uh, results um, is, is you know, one of the lowest we've had in clinical trials. And if you also look at what happened in year two in the Treat and Extend arm, we really see a reduction in number of treatments. Afrasumab arm had a median of three injections in year two compared to a Aflibricep that had six treatments. And all of this was done in the context of achieving non-inferiority in terms of visual acuity outcomes and also achieving similar anatomic outcomes compared to the control arm.
0: So looking all the way at the end of the study, you know, week 108, that tells us about um, the long-term effects of this treatment and this regimen. The study authors also looked at the first three appointments, the first three months where patients received the same dosing irrespective of uh, what therapy they received. So they've received monthly doses. What do they find when comparing the a flibricept and the ferricumab arms during those first couple of months?
3: Yeah. So our, the impetus we had to look at that was really, you know, to control for uh, the treatment algorithm and and to see if there's a signal that this combined VEGF suppression, and true suppression might be pro- providing some value add for our patients. And this is post hoc analysis. So it's supposed to be a hypothesis generating exercise, but we did pick up some signals. If we looked at reduction in CST, at week four, week eight, and week 12, during that match phases, phase, map patients had a greater reduction in CST compared to a flibicept. Another signal we, were, we looked at was time to absence of IRF and SRF. So time to first absence uh, of fluid in the central subfield. Because as you know, clinically, that's important in terms of clinician trying to decide when they can start treating and extent. And in the map arm, That happened for 75% of patients at week eight or after two treatments. And in the flibricep arm, that took place, uh, the 75% achieved that endpoint at week 12, so four weeks later after three injections. So both of these suggest that there's a signal uh, of of potential added benefit, and we certainly need further uh, uh, testing and hypothesis uh, validation in future trials.
0: Okay, so we know then that the number of injections went down over the course of the study in the fericimab arm. We know that the end-of-study anatomy and function were similar among afliprocept and fericimab patients. And we know that fericimab worked pretty quickly in the early periods. Let's talk about those patients that were able to be uh, extended into long treatment intervals. So how many patients made it out to the 16-week interval in this study?
3: So in our analysis that we presented at Arvo, we looked at extended intervals and we defined them as either 12 weeks or 16 weeks. I think most of us in clinical practice would be quite happy getting most of our patients out there to those intervals. And in this trial with the map arm, 78% of patients uh, got to that mark at the end of year two, and 79% got to that mark. At the end of year
0: one. So roughly about the same. About
3: the same, exactly. About 80% of patients, close to 80%, got to that uh, 12-week or 16-week extension. Now, what was also interesting is, you know, what did treat and extend add in terms of value? And what we see is from year end of year one to end of year two, number of patients who were at 16-week intervals actually went up from 45% to 63%. So we see the benefit of treat and extend, uh, at least in this trial, in the context of this agent, we, we could extend a large number of patients beyond year one into 16-week uh, intervals at the end of year two.
0: So it sounds like a significant number of patients were able to extend their interval during the treat and extend period. And I assume a significant portion of them maintained whatever long interval they were on.
3: Precisely. So, you know, one question we, uh, we, we have not answered in our field is we have many different treat and extend intervals. So how do we what metrics do we use to, to assess a treatment extent interval? So for this study, uh, my colleagues and I just came up with this concept of looking at um, treatment decisions that are being made in the treatment extent uh, period of the study. And there were over 2,500 treatment decisions made. So this is a decision every time a patient came to clinic, are you going to reduce the interval, maintain it, or extend? And what we found was that in 90% of these treatment decisions, Patients were either maintained or extended in terms of the intervals. 10% we, the intervals were reduced. And most of the time this was based on anatomy and worsening of CST. So I think if you look at the, the purpose or the rationale behind treatment and extend, we want to extend patients and maintain them at their appropriate intervals. What we don't want to, do, want to do is reduce the interval, go back and forth. That's been associated with worse outcome. that fluctuating back and forth. And I think the fact that 90% of treatment decisions maintained or extended patients um, is certainly a promising uh, uh, outcome from the study.
0: Yeah, I agree. We're going to have a lot of furisimab data coming in the next uh, couple of years, and this is an important contribution. Dr. Chowdhury, thanks for coming on the show. We'll have you back soon.
3: Thank you very much, Scott.
0: All right, listeners, thank you for joining us on our first episode of ARVO 2023 coverage. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do so.
1: We have one more episode coming for you in the next couple of weeks, so be sure to be subscribed and tuned in.